Our Bible reading today will be from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now hear to be mine. And this particular train had, had two engines on it. And as they got to the Rocky Mountains, one of those in- engines quit working. But they still had the other, and so the, uh, the engineer decided they could, they could make their way into Denver and get another engine upon arrival and then complete their journey. But lo and behold, on their way to Denver, the second engine quit, failed as well. And so there they were, stranded on the railroad track, unable to move. And the engineer knew he'd have to tell the passengers on board what was going on. He'd have to inform them why they were standing still. And and so he made the announcement. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news is that both of our engines have quit and we're going to be stuck here a while until they can get another engine to us. The good news is you didn't take this trip by plane. There we go. The good news, bad news aspect of, of that story reminds me of the book of Philippians. Now, early in the series that we've been covering for the past several weeks, I mentioned that I love the book of Philippians, and I love it because it's such a positive book. It is, it is what I consider to be the most optimistic epistle in the New Testament. There is so much positivity in the book of Philippians that sometimes it's easy to overlook when Paul says that there is something that's bad. And that's going to be the case today in the section of Philippians that we're going to study this morning. Paul says something that's not really that good, but it is framed in such positive language around it that it's easy to miss. And the thing that Paul says is bad is that persecution is a guarantee. That persecution is a guarantee. That's not really good news when you think about it. But if you look there, Philippians chapter 1, and you drop down to verse 29, look at what Paul said. He said, It has been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's not positive. That's not good. That's not optimistic. That's bad news, isn't it? Paul made it clear Right here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, that persecution is directly related to confession. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ, then you should automatically be a victim of persecution. And this isn't the only place in Scripture where such an assertion is made. You can go back to the Beatitudes and go to Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 11, and Jesus said, Blessed are you, when others persecute you on my account. 
Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if others persecute you. He used the term when others persecute you. And that term when, it implies that what follows in the text is an expected outcome rather than a possible outcome. So in, in one of the Beatitudes, Jesus made it perfectly clear that believing in him would eventually result in being persecuted for him. And then you can go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. And it's there that Paul said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This statement by Paul is the clearest of all. Because think about that term, all. All who desire to live a godly life. All is an inclusive word. It indicates that what follows is applicable to every disciple. And, and then he uses the word, the phrase, uh, the phrase in, in 2 Timothy 3.12, he uses the phrase, will be persecuted. That's definitive language. It indicates that what follows is certain, is absolute, is guaranteed to happen. So whether we're looking at Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, or we're looking at his words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, or Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, persecution is guaranteed. Now, here's the thing about persecution that we need to acknowledge up front. Scripture doesn't mince words about it. Persecution is a reality for the Christian life. But even though the Bible is adamant that every believer will be persecuted, that doesn't mean that every believer will experience the same kind of persecution. So let's talk about persecution for a moment. The most common, or I shouldn't say common, the most well-known form of persecution is, is physical persecution. If you go back to the Beatitudes, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, you look at verses 10, 11, and 12, where Jesus addressed the, the blessed are the persecuted section. The term he used for persecution is the Greek term that means to cause someone to flee or to cause someone to take flight or to cause someone to, to uh, leave in some fashion. It denotes some sort of, of violence, or I shouldn't say violence, some sort of harassment or physical abuse that causes someone to leave. It is the term used in reference typically to physical persecution. And you journey throughout the Bible and you're going to see physical persecution take many forms. It's going to take the form of imprisonment for some. In particular, you can see this in the life of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. You can see this happen to Christians in Jerusalem under the direction of, of Saul, who would later be Paul in Acts chapter 8. You can see Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12, and you can see Paul and Silas in prison in Acts chapter 16 in the city of Philippi. But imprisonment wasn't the only form. There's also beatings that take place in Scripture. The apostles were flogged in Acts chapter 5. Paul was stoned in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Silas were beaten with rods before their imprisonment in Acts chapter 16. And then, of course, there was also execution. Stephen in Acts chapter 7. James in Acts chapter 12. Antipas in Revelation chapter 2. And this type of persecution continues to occur throughout the world today. It was just two years ago that we heard from India where some of the, the men involved in the preacher training school that we support there were severely beaten. One of their wives was beaten so badly that she miscarried a baby. It still happens. 
But you know what? It's foreign to us, right? We never think about it. Because we have this thing called the First Amendment to the Constitution that says that there will be no government interference on our faith, which presupposes this idea that there will never be any physical persecution that you and I will suffer at the hands of our government. That's the protection we've been offered. And so we no longer have this fear of physical persecution. And that's a double-edged sword. It's a blessing because it is, it is wonderful to live out our faith without having to worry about the harm that would, become, that would befall on us or our family. But yet, physical persecution has always been the greatest preventative for watered-down Christianity. Because when physical persecution is reality, all of a sudden you find out just how great your commitment to God is. But we don't have to worry about that, do we? But that doesn't mean we don't face persecution. It may mean that we have a, a more tolerable form of persecution to face, but there still is persecution available. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 5, where I've been referencing here for a little bit, when Jesus gave the blessed are the persecuted beatitude, he said this in verse 11, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now Luke has a variation of this beatitude in chapter 6 and verse 22, where he said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. So when we look at the beatitudes, not only do we see uh, uh, that persecution can take the form of physical punishment, physical abuse and harassment, but it can also take the form of verbal and societal persecution. See, in Scripture, we also have individuals who were ostracized in society. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read about how some Christians at that time endured a hard struggle with sufferings, according to verse 32. In Hebrews 10 and verse 33, it says, Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, when we read about what Christians were enduring there in the book of Hebrews, it doesn't sound necessarily like they're being executed. It doesn't sound necessarily like there's a whole lot of physical harm coming upon them, but they are having their property confiscated. They are being attacked verbally and orally in this, which are the same thing, I know, being attacked in that fashion here in the book of Hebrews. Persecution isn't just a physical abuse. It can take other forms. Physical abuse might be the most excessive and might be be the most difficult to tolerate, but there are other forms of persecution. And I believe this verbal and societal persecution that those in the book of Hebrews endured is the same type of persecution that's prevalent in our society today. It manifests itself in a few different ways. For instance, it will manifest itself in the increasing, in in, in society's effort to increase the definition and application of Thomas Jefferson's statement regarding the separation of church and state so that Christianity is viewed as a danger to our civil institutions. It can take the form of criticizing Christians for their stance on divorce and abortion 
and other matters of morality. It can take the form of accusations against Christians of being intolerant and unloving because of our stance on homosexuality and even women's roles in the church. It can take the form of of mocking Christians, particularly through the entertainment industry, for choosing to maintain their sexual purity. Now, don't get me wrong. Enduring, Enduring mocking and enduring accusations and enduring criticism, that's not nearly as difficult as enduring a beating. But it is persecution nonetheless. And Scripture says persecution is guaranteed for those who are going to profess Christ. See, Paul is not guilty of false advertising. He's not guilty of hiding the negative information in the fine print. He makes it very clear in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29 that persecution is promised for you, for me, for anyone who claims to be a disciple. But, That's not all Paul said on this matter. He also said persecution is a gift. Now this might be hard to accept. Persecution, a gift? How is that even possible? We'll get to that in a minute. But first I want you to notice what he says here in verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. That Greek term translated granted comes from the same root word for grace. And if you're familiar with the word for grace, it refers to something with which you have been gifted. Grace is a gift. So what Paul is effectively saying here in verse 29 is that that we've been given two gifts. We've been given the gift of believing in the Lord. That's a gift from God because... How do you believe? Belief comes by hearing. God has given us his word so that we have the uh, necessary means to understand his will and and his plan. And and we can believe because we have his word. That, That is a gift. But he also says we have the gift of suffering for his sake. Paul's not the only one to refer to persecution as a gift. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, I know I'm appealing to it quite a bit. In verse 12, after Jesus has given the beatitude and said, Blessed are the persecuted, in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus was in effect saying that we can find joy in persecution. And if you don't believe me, or believe him, I should say, then just look at how the first century Christians reacted to persecution. Just two chapters after the church was instituted, church was instituted in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, persecution began. It started with the arrest of Paul and John, which resulted in the Sanhedrin threatening them not to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus anymore. Or else. When they and the rest of the apostles refused to heed that threat, and they continued preaching in the name of Jesus, they were collectively arrested, 
in Acts chapter 5 and verse 18. And they were told in no uncertain terms that they were not to talk about Jesus anymore. And to show just how serious they were, the Sanhedrin, those Jewish leaders, had the apostles beaten, or as some translations more specifically say, flogged. That's verse 40 of Acts chapter 5. But look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. Look at how the apostles responded to being beaten for Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. We're told that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In other words, they celebrated the fact that they were persecuted. They rejoiced at the fact that they were persecuted. They took Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12 to rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. They took it literally. And the point is that persecution should cause us as disciples to rejoice. Now let's consider why. I noticed three things in Philippians chapter 1 that Paul says makes persecution a gift. The first is that persecution strengthens our solidarity. Now go back to Philippians chapter 1 and look at verse 27 and 28 with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. What does he want to hear? That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Before Paul talks about persecution in verse 29, he talks about unity. Before Paul promises that persecution will come, he calls for solidarity. Now look at verse 30. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 30. Paul indicated that the Christians in Philippi were engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is saying that he and they, though more than 600 miles apart from each other, were both experiencing persecution. And the point is that after Paul talks about persecution, he talks about unity. After Paul guarantees persecution, he identifies how it unites him with them. So whether you're talking about before he talks about persecution or after he talks about persecution, Paul talks about unity. He frames the conversation about persecution around the subject of unity. And I think the reason he does this is because shared life experiences often serve as the foundation for unification. Think about it this way. Those who receive the same medical diagnosis often bond together. Th those who are, are, are suffering from cancer or ha who have overcome cancer have a bond with somebody who's diagnosed with it already. There is a, a, a uniqueness in that situation. I find myself drawn to anybody I hear that has migraines. I'm not talking about those little slight headaches that some of you call migraines. 
Some of you don't know what a migraine is. You claim it's a migraine because it was a bad headache. That's not a migraine. I don't consider it a migraine until you throw up because that's what I do. Had a great filet one day after services on Sunday for lunch. I didn't even make it into my house with that filet. It was in the flower bed because I had a migraine. So unless you're at the point where you're throwing up, don't talk to me about migraines. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm a little more sensitive than that. But I find myself relating to those who, who, who deal with such a thing because I know what it's like. And you know what? We, we also have a bond with those who suffer tragedy like us. I, I think about those who have lost a child. There's a bond between those, those who have lost a child with, those who, with others who have. Though, we have. though Sarah and I have not experienced this, I've, I didn't know how many um, lives are affected by miscarriages until we encountered our first pregnancy with Micah. And there's a bond I, that, that people have when they've gone through that experience with others who have that experience. See, when you suffer tragedy, it connects you with other people who suffer the same tragedy, but it also happens in our occupations. If somebody has the same occupation as you, for some reason there's a bond made there. I'm drawn to other ministers because I want to hear what, they, what it's like for them. Do they deal with the same frustrations that I deal with? Do they have the same challenges that I have? How have they figured out how to maneuver through the, 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 the expectations of the job? I'm drawn to somebody who has that shared life experience. Hopefully you get what I'm talking about, and, and you've got your own categories and your own situations where you have shared life experience that draws you to somebody else. What Paul seems to be indicating here is that persecution is a shared life experience for Christians. And I, I, I see here that a unique bond can be formed around the fact that the world hates us. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 17 in one of his parting conversations with the disciples. He told them, the world's going to hate you. You and I as Christians can have a unique bond because we're hated by everybody else for no other reason and that we're associated with Jesus Christ. There should be a special bond formed around that fact. And I think that's why uh, it's so interesting to look at the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, I should say. Matthew chapter 6, the model prayer. Have you ever noticed in the model prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, have you ever noticed that he uses plural pronouns instead of singular pronouns? Listen to the terminology. Our Father, our Father in heaven, not my Father. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give me my daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Not forgive me my debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And I think what Jesus did in the, in the model prayer was frame its language in such a way to remind us that we're part of a community of faith and therefore not alone to face the hardships of life. All of us need forgiveness. 
All of us need daily provisions. All of us face temptation. All of us need deliverance from evil. Sometimes all you need to help you endure the hatred of the world is a reminder that you're not alone. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a Nobel Prize winning author. Back in the 1940s, he served in the Russian military during World War II. However, he was arrested during that time for writing derogatory comments in private letters about Joseph Stalin. He was then sentenced to eight years in Soviet labor camps. Now, one more thing you need to know about Alexander Solzhenitsyn is that he was a Christian in the broadest sense of the term. According to legend, he reached his breaking point one day while working in a labor camp, and he decided to give up. He was just going to sit down, and he knew that if he sat down, once a guard saw him, the guard would order him back to work. And once he disobeyed that command, the guard would come over there and beat him, likely until he died. He was done. So he sat down, ready for the guard to come take his life. But as he sat there, an old elderly prisoner came up and with a stick drew in the dirt in front of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he drew a cross. Right there we could see it. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn got up, picked up his shovel, and went back to work. Now let me explain. I'm not telling you that story so that we'll revere Alexander Solzhenitsyn. By the way, I like saying that name. And I don't tell you that story as a way of claiming that he's a brother in Christ. I tell you that story simply because it's a reminder that sometimes all we need to help us endure and overcome is the realization that somebody else knows what we're going through. I think that's why when Jesus said, the world hates you, he prefaced it by saying, they hated me first. The world hates you because it hated me, he said. And so when Paul writes about persecution, he frames it in the context of unity because he realizes that persecution strengthens our solidarity. But then he also indicates that persecution empowers our evangelism. Look at verse 28 of Philippians chapter 1 again. After telling the Christians in Philippi to not be frightened at anything by their opponents, he said, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. What does that mean? One commentator said perhaps the fact that the Christians did not falter even when persecuted would make a few of their opponents stop and reconsider whether they are right or wrong. In other words, it may just be that our greatest influence on our opponents, on those who hate us, comes during times of persecution because they witness our endurance. And it makes them think there's something different about them. See, in order for persecution to empower our evangelism, we can't retaliate. We can't operate with the... I just forgot the phrase. Eye for an eye mentality. There we go. All I could say was lex talionis, and I wasn't really worried about speaking Latin today. 
We can't operate on an eye for an eye mentality. We can't get back at them. That's not how this works. In order for persecution to be a means for our evangelism to, to take off, we can't be retaliators. Consider how the Bible says we should conduct ourselves in the face of persecution. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, Jesus himself said, Love your enemies and pray for who? Those who persecute you. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, Paul instructed us to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. And Paul urged the Corinthians to be imitators of him as he was of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And then he wanted them to imitate him by the way he handled persecution. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, he said, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And listen to these words from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. He says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All throughout the New Testament, we're told to handle ourselves in the face of persecution in such a way that we can still offer an evangelistic message. Our conduct in the face of persecution may just be the turning point in somebody else's life because they look at us and go, why does he still have hope when I'm doing this to him? That's the point. Our evangelistic efforts can be empowered by persecution. Do you remember the story of, of Paul and Silas when they were in prison in Philippi? They were seized by a pagan crowd because they had cut into the profits that some were making in uh, the sorcery business. Roman soldiers came and arrested them, and according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 23, they inflicted many blows upon them with rods, then threw them into prison. While in prison, we're told that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Then something miraculous happened. There was a great earthquake that shook the prison, causing its doors to be opened and the prisoners' shackles to break apart. But no one escaped. Isn't that fascinating? No chains, no cell doors, no one left. And I think the reason no one left, I mean, I'm not just talking about Paul and Silas, I'm talking about the other prisoners who weren't Christians. I think the reason no one left is because of the worship of God that Paul and Silas offered that evening. It was heard by those other prisoners, not only it was heard by those other prisoners when that earthquake occurred. They were sitting there hearing this praise of God, then this earthquake happens. And, and I think that in the minds of the prisoners, they saw the correlation. And that praise of God, then that earthquake, brought those other prisoners to the attention of Paul and Silas. And when Paul and Silas refused to escape, I think the others did too. 
Because did you notice that when Paul and Silas spoke to that jailer, he was more than receptive to the gospel? See, here's the point. Paul and Silas did not let their persecution dictate their conduct. Even during their persecution, they maintained and demonstrated righteous character. And as a result, their message of salvation was heard, at least by the jailer, if not by others. God can use our persecution to be a platform from which the gospel is broadcast. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. And finally, when we consider how persecution is a gift, it's a gift because it corroborates our citizenship. Look again, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 28. Not only did Paul say this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, he said, but of your salvation. How is persecution a clear sign of your salvation? Well, as we've already mentioned, Scripture declares that, that all believers will be persecuted. So if you're experiencing persecution, then it's a validation of your standing as a disciple. Because every believer is going to face persecution. I mentioned a, a few moments ago, or a little while ago, about Peter and John being arrested in Acts chapter 4. That was the, the initial persecution of the church that we read about in, there. And as they stood in the presence of those Jewish leaders pleading their case, or stating their case, I should say, Peter presented the gospel, and we're told this in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. We're told that when they, that's a reference to the Sanhedrin, when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The first century opponents of Christianity took note of the fact that these men had been with Jesus after they persecuted them. In other words, the way the original disciples endured persecution confirmed their association with Christ in the eyes of their opponents. And the point is that persecution has the power to associate you with Christ in such a unique way. See, since persecution is a guarantee for believers and therefore an indicator of your citizenship, Here's what you really need to consider today. What does a lack of persecution mean for your life? If you're not enduring persecution, what does that say about you as a disciple? I think a lack of persecution is an indicator that there's a citizenship problem. Go to the book of Revelation and look at chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Jesus communicates these messages to the churches in Asia. During a time when the Roman Empire was persecuting Christianity across the board. And in some of the letters that Jesus wrote there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, he commended some churches for their perseverance in the face of persecution. He told Ephesus, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. And he told Pergamum, You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And then he writes to other churches and informs them that persecution is coming. He told the church in Smyrna, 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He told Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. But there are two churches. Two churches that received no communication about persecution whatsoever. It's the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea. They're not commended for their perseverance, and they're not informed that any persecution is on the horizon. Why is that? When Rome is persecuting everyone and anyone they can, why are these two churches not facing persecution in the past or in the future? As one commentator said, there was no persecution because there was no invasion of the enemy's territory. It's kind of like the story I heard about a man who told his preacher one day after a sermon on how Satan's always trying to attack the believer. The man said, I don't think Satan ever bothers me. And the preacher said, when two men are going the same direction on the same road, they rarely bump into each other. Today we talk about persecution. We, we acknowledge that there is joy in persecution. But the point of this sermon is not to change your mindset towards persecution. It's not to get you to think, oh, persecution's a good thing. I'm not trying to accomplish that, though that is a side benefit. Really, what I want to accomplish today is I want you to think to yourself, am I being persecuted? Because if you're not being persecuted in some fashion, then maybe you're not being bold enough for Christ. Maybe you're not being persecuted because nobody knows you're a Christian outside of those who go to church with you. Maybe you're not being persecuted because you're not threatening Satan. Maybe you're not being persecuted because you're not advancing the gospel. Maybe you're not being persecuted because you're not living up to the standards of the kingdom of heaven. All who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. The question today is, does that include you? And if not, what needs to change in order for it to? If you're not a child of God today, if you haven't found the, the blessing that comes with salvation, then we invite you to make that decision by confessing that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. But if you are a child of God, and you haven't faced persecution yet, it doesn't have to be physical persecution, we've already talked about that, but if, if you haven't faced persecution yet, then what needs to change? What's preventing that from happening? Today, make sure you're numbered among the all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And make that decision while together we stand and sing. Gladly I'll forfeit all of her treasures, Jesus I've heard, like this you may.